Would you turn to Esther chapter 6 this morning? Esther chapter 6 as we continue to walk through this story together. As you look there, there's a date, February 26, 2017. I'm guessing, unless it's your birthday or something like that, it probably doesn't mean anything to you. It wouldn't have meant anything to me, but you... But it's a night that will be remembered uh, for years to come in Hollywood. And as I tell you why, you'll probably, some of you will have recollection of this. But on that night at the Oscars, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway had the honor of presenting at the Academy Awards uh, the, the, the award for Best Picture. This is the biggest, biggest prize of the night. And so after introducing the nominees and then having some brief banter back and forth, it was time to announce the big winner. Beatty opened the envelope and appeared to be a little confused, and then she handed it to Dunaway. And then Dunaway, she then announced La La Land as the winner of Best Picture. And then the movie, the musicals, cast, and their crew, and their director and producers, they all came on the stage just elated, to accept their big award and to give their thank you speeches. The only problem, if you remember, is La La Land did not win. Um, one entertainment journalist writes, in one of the most surprising reversals in the history of live television, headset-clad members of the Oscars crew scurried on stage to alert the La La Land team that something was wrong. The film's producer quickly grabbed the microphone and announced, there's been a mistake. Moonlight, you won the best picture. And with some kind of nervous chuckles in the audience, he said, this is not a joke. Well, it turned out there was really no malice behind that, and there was really no significant mystery to the whole debacle. It was just simply an envelope mix-up. They were handed the wrong envelope as they went on stage. But nonetheless, it, provided, it proved to be this very shocking reversal, right, on live television for everybody to see. We all were in disbelief. I wasn't watching, but I remember hearing this after the fact. Well, in Esther 6, there's a far greater, far more shocking, and certainly more significant reversal. It's one of epic proportions, and it's recorded here for us. And so, as we're going to see, Haman, who, who, if you remember, he wanted, he wanted honor from everyone, especially Mordecai, this this defiant one who refused to bow down to him. And so he wants honor, and he thinks his moment of glory has finally come. But, spoiler alert, and what we're going to see in just a moment, Mordecai, his enemy, ends up being honored instead, and, and Haman ends up being utterly devastated. And behind it all was basically a simple envelope mix-up. In this case, it was really a simple bout of insomnia. That's what, that's what prompted all of this. So if you know the story already, many of you do, some don't. You, you know what's coming though. But, but Haman, Lee, Haman certainly didn't have a clue and Mordecai didn't know what was going on. And so we, we kind of want to enter into the shock of it. We want to see this story with fresh eyes this morning as we come to Esther chapter 6. And so these shocking twists in the story, they highlight the fact that things just aren't always as they seem. That's what I want you to think about this morning. Things just aren't always as they seem. What seems inevitable really isn't. What seems impossible is not. That's what we see. And so there are these, 
we're going to see this morning as we walk through the text, these four perceptions that we can have that can be dead wrong. Four perceptions that can be very wrong. Four things that seem one way at times, but they're actually not what they seem. And so that's what I want to see and under those headings as we look at this passage together. The first heading we'll see is when all hope seems to be lost, it's not. When all hope seems lost, it's not. So remember, as we, if you've been with us, we, we closed out chapter 5, and remember how high the stakes are, pun intended, as chapter 6 opens here. And so remember, chapter 5 ended on another cliffhanger, just like chapter 4 ended on. And so Esther knows, she knows about the plans to eradicate all of the Jewish people in the empire about 11 months from when this is, when this is taking place. But she knows nothing about what we saw last week, about Haman's, Haman's plan to execute Mordecai. Mordecai is her older cousin, who is her adoptive father, and so she knows nothing about those plans to execute Mordecai that very morning. And so the gallows, this what's really probably the 75-foot high stake, wooden stake, it's being built. The fuse has already been lit. The wheels are in motion. And, and so... And, and, and neither, again, neither Esther nor Mordecai know anything about this. They have no clue that this is happening behind closed doors. It's completely out of their hands. They can, they can do nothing about it because they know nothing about it. That's what we find. So humanly speaking, things seem utterly hopeless here. For Mordecai, for the entire Jewish population still, there's no resolution yet to these, to either of these issues. Yet in spite of the way things appear, this is not the way things truly are. Because in the Bible, we're never just speaking humanly. That's not how the Bible addresses things. So, And it all begins, as we see in verse, as, in verse 1 of chapter 6, it all begins after the king is simply unable to sleep. So verse 1, on that night, the king could not sleep. So on that night, the very night that Mordecai is, before Mordecai is to be killed, that's the night it just so happens that he has this insomnia. And so kings, like the rest of us, they have sleepless nights. This is the most powerful man in the world. He's got a few things on his mind, probably. So whether that's the cause behind it, but, but, he, but he can't sleep. Now you think, he's probably got the most comfortable sleeping arrangement of anybody in the world at that time. I mean, I doubt the beds at that time were really that comfortable or luxurious. Even most of us have beds that were probably more comfortable than he slept on. Some of you have those sleep number beds or, you know, or the fancy stuff to, to try to get a good night's sleep. You struggle with sleep. And, and, and he, didn't have, he didn't have temperature-controlled environment, no air conditioning, which that's the part that really, you know, gets me. But, but again, even with all of our comforts and all of our abilities and to, to maneuver things and manipulate things to make it just right, we have our sleep machines, little white noise machines, all that stuff, we still have sleepless nights, don't we? I mean, we, we, we can identify this. This is a very ordinary thing. And there's nothing in the text indicate, indicating why he couldn't sleep. It, there's no mention of strange dreams like we would see, we saw it with Nebuchadnezzar. There, there's, there not, there's no indication that he's troubled by anything in particular. Um, uh, you know, he's got heartburn or something over some decision that he's got to make the next day. There's, he's not filled with any regret, it doesn't seem, over his edict to exterminate the Jewish people. Some have speculated, half-jokingly, I think, that the king was awake because of all the construction noise as Haman's servants are building this, you know, the gallows for Mordecai's execution. But the text gives us no, no reason whatsoever for his insomnia. There's no apparent reason 
except God has a sovereign purpose in delivering his people. That's what's really behind this. And that's what the, that's what the writer is highlighting by not telling us anything else. And so I'm, I'm sure he tried everything to sleep, you know, counting sheep, counting uh, chariots, counting concubines. I mean, he was probably doing all those things he could imagine to, to fall asleep, but nothing was working. He didn't have late night television, you know, to flip on and try to, try to make him get drowsy again. He had all kinds of forms of entertainment. He had all the food and drink and dancers, and, and he had a, an, an entire harem at his disposal, disposal. But this king just so happens not to be able to sleep on this particular night, and he just so happens to ask to be read to in order to fall asleep. And it just so happens that the book he requests to be read to him is this book of government records. So you see in verse 1 there, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now this wasn't exactly riveting reading here. Uh, there are, you know, many of the many of these chronicles have, from the Persian Empire have actually been preserved, and historians say this was a, an unbelievably dull reading here. So this is not like some fanciful uh, writing or anything like that. It's basically like a spreadsheet, just this just this catalog of dates and events and names and and and, and you know, victories won, lands conquered, rewards that were were given, that kind of thing. It's just it's about as Interesting is like reading, you know, income tax codes or something like that, guidelines. No offense, CPAs that might be out there, but, but, but maybe that's the point. Maybe he's saying, okay, this will put me to sleep. This is perfect. Just kind of the monotone reading of these annals. Uh, that'll do it. So you can just imagine Ahasuerus is these, is these records are being read to him as eyelids are, eyelids are kind of getting droopy again and he's maybe drifting off, about to drift off to sleep as this guy drones on and on reading these things. But this becomes, this little ordinary thing becomes the whole hinge to the entire story here in Esther. It is. This chapter, really these opening verses of this chapter, this is the turning point in the Esther story. We'll talk more about this next week as we kind of examine the structure of the entire book because it's going to come more into play as we go along. But the, the, there is a very, very clear and definite literary structure to the book of Esther. And it makes it very plain that this is the pivot point. This is the turning point. This is the, the pivot point of the whole narrative. And it doesn't, it doesn't revolve around or even involve Esther directly. It's not about like the, the turning point is not some courageous stand that she makes or some heroic act by the, the heroine. No, it's not some dramatic you know, moment of defiance by Mordecai. That's not where everything changes. Esther and Mordecai are probably fast asleep when everything turns within the story. They're clueless about what's going on behind those palace doors. And so Esther's, she's actually absent from the entire chapter, this decisive chapter in the story that's the, of the book that's named after her. She's gone. And Mordecai, he's just a very passive participant in this part of the of the story. So what that's saying, and, and as the human author under the inspiration of the Spirit, what the, the point that that's making is by having this very insignificant, ordinary event be the pivot point of the entire story here of Esther, it's, it's, it, rather than being some you know, dramatic showdown with the hero, hero of the story, something like that, the author is doing what he's doing. He's taking the focus off of human action. 
He's taking the focus off of people. People are not what turns the story here. There's some unnamed, unseen power that's controlling these events, these reversals. We know who this power is. We've seen His hand. We've seen Him in silhouette and we continue to see Him here. God is working. He's working unilaterally through very ordinary events, ordinary means to turn things around here for His people. Help, remember from chapter 4, that language. Help is arising from, quote, another place in such a way as to make it absolutely clear that their deliverance is entirely from God. And so, now does this mean that human choices, human actions are, are meaningless? That, that what Esther and Mordecai are doing doesn't really matter? Of course not. Esther will still get her moment, we'll see this next week, to, to stand up for God and, 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 and His people. And God will use that courageous stand of Esther to thwart Haman's plans and bring his scheming to an end. So Esther's faithfulness is very important. God's sovereign purpose, it, it works through people, real people, real decisions, real choices, real plans, real actions, real words, but it doesn't ultimately depend upon people and their choices. See that. Instead, their, their obedience and their action itself is part of God's wonderful, powerful work. And that's what I, I want you to see. Just as we step into the door of chapter 6 is... All hope seems to be lost here, but God, but God. And through the most ordinary means, this sleepless night and some bedtime reading, this hope is fanned into flame again. Again, while Esther and Mordecai are sleeping. They're clueless about all of this. So this passage helps us, brothers and sisters. It helps us when things look really bad. And I know some that's right now for some of you. And maybe things look really bad in your, your personal life and your family. Things look bad in, in your community and whatever, you know, however small your community is. And things look bad in our nation. Things look bad in our world. And, and, and we get so twisted of those things. And God is able, though, He's able to take things that look unredeemably bad and to use them for His glory and for the good of His people and for the furtherance of His gospel. God is able to do that. We've seen that in this story throughout. We've seen it from the very beginning when the Lord, again, the Lord has used these awful, awful things of Esther being abducted as a young teenage girl and and, and taken captive and held for a year and groomed be, to be this object of sexual pleasure for this wicked, perverted king. And yet even through all of those things and through these wicked plans to annihilate the Jews and now this scheming of Haman to, to uh, have, have Mordecai executed through all of these things, God is, God is at work. And I would just say, as we see this in Esther, we can... We can see our lives through that grid. And, and understanding this, it helps us to, to fight anxiety with this trust in the wise providence of God. That should be the effect. We see, we see a, a we, listen, when we see, and we do, we see awful things happening around us in very personal ways and in, in larger, you know, macro ways. And, and we see a handful of those things and it can overwhelm us. And we can really be shaken. You know, this 
in a larger scale, this, this war that's erupting in, in, in some part of the world, or these threats of terrorism, or this legislation is passed that's concerning to us, or this Supreme Court decision, or whatever it is on those larger scales, or this just kind of cultural acceptance we see in the wider world of, of some really depraved behavior or, or, or false belief, and it's, it's being embraced by, by the culture. We see in, in more personal ways, you know, tragic losses like we've seen this week, or this, this series of very devastating circumstances in someone's life, and it just seems like it's just not ending, and it's just one thing after the next. We see that when we see fractured relationships, all of those things, and many, many more, they can, it, it seems like, it just seems like things, it's just out of control and hope is lost. And now without minimizing any of those awful realities, they're real and they're painful and they matter. We have to understand for all that handful of ways that, that really keep us up at night, sleepless nights, tossing and turning and anxious about those things, for that handful of ways, God is working in billions and billions and billions of ways that you you don't even see. I mean, and, and those numbers are just to give us some some sort of understanding, but if we could put a lot more zeros past billions. He is working in countless ways. He is, when hope seems lost, brothers and sisters, it is not. The Lord is active. So that's the first thing. So when hope seems lost, it isn't. Because when no one seems to notice, and this connects, God does. When no one seems to notice, God does. So just when the shadow of death seems to be at its darkest in the story, this ray of hope shines into the king's bedroom. And so, so again, it just so happened that it's that night that the king can't sleep. And it just so happens that the, the activity he chose to combat his insomnia was ha- being read to. And it just so happens that the book that he requested in these government records, and it just so happens that the place in the book that the book open, is open to is, is right here. It's this particular part. And so the book of memorable deeds is being read to the king and then verse 2, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. You remember this from chapter 2, right? We saw this story. And so in the midst of all of this very dull reading, the king is just shocked by what he hears read to him. And, and the reader, the reader that's, you know, recounting this for the king, he comes to this part about this guy Mordecai saving his life by unveiling this assassin, assassination plot against the king. And so again, we read about this in Esther 2, Esther 2, and it got the king all worked up and he got him wondering. So verse 3, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king is just beside himself. Remember, Persian kings, we talked about this earlier, they were famous for rewarding those who did good to them, those who who good good deeds. And so it was good for public relations. It was also good for personal safety because they wanted to gain loyalty and they wanted to keep loyalty. And so they would reward, you know, things like this as, as, as people that, you know, like Mordecai did. They uh, unveiled this plot against the king's life. And so the reply gets back from his servants, and it shocks the king. So verse 3, the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Nothing? Are you kidding? I mean, who's going to save my life next time? 
If there's no incentive of, of this expected reward, you know, what's going to happen next time something like this happens? And if, if it's not known that I've rewarded this one who did this good deed. And again, you just think about what's happening here. Think about the contrast here. Haman's servants, servants are actively completing this 75 foot tall, this enormous gallows, this stake to hang Mordecai on. And the king's servants just happen to be reading out loud about Mordecai's good deeds. How he saved the king's life over four years ago and was never rewarded for that. Again, no human notices or knows what's happening here. Nobody sees it all. There's not a single person in this story that knows all of these things that are happening at the same time. And, and that's intentional. The we're, we're, reader is, is privy to this, but the, 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 the characters have no clue. So Esther and Mordecai don't even know about, again, Haman's plans to kill Mordecai the next morning, let alone the fact that the king isn't sleeping and instead is having these, the, this story of Mordecai's unrewarded good deed read to him. But God knows. God knows. Seems like nobody notices, but God does. He's aware. And, and there's wonderful encouragement for us, church. Dear child of God, dear, the Lord... You may feel all alone. You may feel unnoticed and passed over. You may feel like your, your good deeds, your attempts to do what's right, it's just going completely unnoticed. You may feel like your life is unimportant and overlooked. But God notices. He sees. He cares. He's aware. He is, he's aware of it all. He, he, he's working. He's using you. He's using even these difficult circumstances. He, he's a God who, who takes note, who rewards. We read this in the Psalm 71 just a moment ago. So when hope seems lost, it isn't. When, when no one seems to notice, God does. And then third, when injustice seems untouchable, it is not. It is not. So we can almost picture the king sort of impulsively you know, leaping out of bed here as he as he hears this account and finds out Mordecai's never been rewarded. And so almost everything Ahasuerus does is impulsive. And so we can imagine him just kind of storming out of the bedroom and all, you know, this little handful of, of servants that are, are tr- struggling, trying to keep up, scrambling to keep up with the king as he's, he's going out the door. It, this, this oversight has to be fixed and it has to be fixed now. And so how's it going to be fixed? I mean, for all of, of the king's impulsiveness, he really doesn't know how to make decisions for himself. And so he's helpless without advisors. Every decision he makes, he has these advisors around, the, around him. So he counts on them to tell him what to do and what decisions to make. So he asks, asks his servants, verse 4, who is in the court? In other words, what, what, what of my advisors, which of my advisors are around to tell me what to do about this? And so normally at this time in the morning, it's the early hours of the morning probably, the palace would be, would be basically empty. His closest advisors would be home sleeping. Um, and, and yet divine providence is moving other pieces into place as well here. And so Haman, we see, just, just so happens to be in the courtyard at this very early hour. He's there because he has his own business to take care of with the king. And so, and this scene becomes... This is one of the sweetest 
uh, sweetest episodes of poetic justice in all scripture, isn't it? I mean, if you're familiar with this story, it's just, it's beautiful. It's so wonderfully ironic that the king is seeking advice on how to reward Mordecai from the very person who's in the palace seeking Mordecai's execution. That's it's beautiful. So verse 4, And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered. Coincidence? He had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, just standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman can't wait to have Mordecai impaled on the stake that he's had erected during the during the night. This that's just towering above the city, this exhibition of his revenge on, you know, proud, stiff necked, uh, disrespectful Mordecai. And so he can't wait to speak with the king and to get the king's okay and blessing upon his execution plans of his enemy, and so he could just go on and enjoy the rest of his day, the rest of his life. And so he probably thinks, What lucky timing! I'm here to see the king early in the morning, wanting to be the first one in the door to talk with him about this. The king's up early too. In fact, he's calling for me. This is perfect. So verse 6, So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done, look at this, to the man whom the king delights to honor? So the king speaks first. And the, and the, and the request from the king takes Haman completely by surprise here. I mean, he, he had come in focused on getting revenge against Mordecai. But the king's question here, it takes his mind off of revenge and it puts his mind on the only thing he likes thinking about more than revenge, and that's himself. And so because notice, the king leaves out one very crucial piece of information, the identity of the one who's to be honored. It's just like Haman. Remember Haman did when he, he wrote the edict and, and presented this to the king that, that all of these people that, that are they're not obeying your laws and, and they're costing you money, they need to be eradicated. And so he completely left out the identity of the people saying they were the Jewish people back in chapter 3. But, but here, Haman, he's not slow at all in filling in the blank here, uh, at least in his head. And so verse 6, he says, And Haman said to himself, he's just... He's talking to himself. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Who could possibly be more deserving of honor than yours truly? I mean, this is the first time in the story. We wanted little indicators like this. We wanted to know what Esther was thinking. We wanted to know what Mordecai was thinking when he wouldn't bow. We, we wanted to know all of these things, but this is the first time we're told what someone's thinking. Literally, this Haman said in his heart. That's how the text reads. He said in his heart. Now, to, to no one's surprise, Haman's, Haman has, uh, the, the, the most important thing in Haman's heart is Haman. He has himself on his mind. He can think of no one better suited for reward than himself. And so, I mean, after all, he's, he's rapidly risen to number two in the empire. He's been promoted to the prime minister on the largest empire of the world at that time. He, is, he has been given not one, but two invitations to these feasts with the king and queen. Back-to-back days. The next one is, the, is that very day. Given all of this, he thinks, without question, the king is talking about me. 
Like, I mean, you know, he's think, probably thinking like, this is just some clever little play. Oh, you sly dog. I know, I know what you're, I know what you're up to here. It's like, you know, parents, sometimes you, you're trying to figure out what to get your kids for Christmas or something like that. You know, what would your cousin, who's the same age as you and same gender, what would he like for Christmas, do you think, you know? And you're, you're trying to, trying to get that, fish that out of him without being so obvious. And so I think, Haman I, I, I know what's going on here. He's talking about me. He's just trying to be subtle. And so Haman thinks, here, here's my window. Here's the opportunity I've been looking for. Here's my chance to get, to get, to secure my place of honor and admiration within, within the empire. All people will see how, how great and respectable and how incredible I am to get what he always wanted. But he doesn't show any of Esther's subtlety that we saw last week. He doesn't show any of her patience that she demonstrated last week. He just jumps right in with his answer. So verse 7, Haman said to the king, and he starts, for the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, what he goes on to request, we'll see, it doesn't surprise us one bit after what we know about him. Particularly what we saw last week. We saw last week, he's made an idol out of public admiration and public recognition. He, He doesn't really want wealth or power. He has plenty of both. But what he wants is to be treated as significant in the eyes of people. He wants basically to be treated like a king. And so thinking he's the person that the king wants to honor, Haman just kind of lets his greedy imagination run wild here. And he, he can picture each one of these things that he's going to say being done to him. And he can just imagine it. He's just savoring every word as it rolls out of his mouth as he goes on to describe, this is what you should do, king, to the one to whom you delight to honor. And he says in verse 8, Let the royal robes be brought which the king has worn. And let the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Let him ride that horse, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to, the, to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, the city center, the big plaza where everybody's at, and let them proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I mean, to, to wear the king's robe, to, to ride the king's horse. This was through this parade in the streets. This was the height, the height of dignity and prestige in the eyes of the people. I, I guess I was trying to think of a parallel. It would be like the president uh, allowing one of his cabinet members to you know, fly on Air Force One to use his private private airplane and to have the big you know all the presses there as they they board the plane and as they exit the plane and and just this big to do and it's just showing hey i i have arrived i'm here elevating that person's status in the eyes of the people he's he's like the president this is how he travels and so i mean Haman, he is he is loving this he is caught up in a dream world here as he's, as he's, he's saying these things. This, was, this is going to be incredible. And you notice his favorite line. He, this is the line he repeats three times. The man whom the king delights to honor. I mean, he loves thinking about himself and saying those words. This is so good because this is, this is all he's ever longed for. To be the man the king delights to honor. And again, we're getting a, a window into his heart here. And so as he's savoring these, these, 
this thought of this ticker tape, ticker tape parade in his honor, and he's just relishing in this, this prospect of what's going to come for him. All of this is happening. Well, his parade gets rained on, doesn't it? And the day that looks like it may, may be the very best day of Haman's life. Mordecai is going to be hanged. And there's this parade of honor for him. It turns out to be Haman's you know, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And the punchline comes in verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! You won't waste any time. Take the robes and the horse, just like you said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. The whole time Haman's been telling the king, what, what he so badly wants for himself, all the king's hearing is this wonderful advice for how the man that Haman hates more than anything else and desperately wants destroyed will be honored. I mean, you can just imagine Haman's face as he hears this. Mid-sentence, Mordecai's name, the blood just goes out, jaw drops to the floor. From this proud elation, just basking in this glory that's going to be his to utter humiliation and probably panic. He had been planning his enemy's parade of honor and he didn't even know it. All the admiration he craved above everything else was going to be given to his number one enemy, Mordecai the Jew. And he doesn't just have to watch all of this unfold. He has to lead the procession. He has to lead the horse with Mordecai sitting on it in the royal robes through the city. How, how humiliating. Verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse that he was ready to wear and ride and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now I do wonder, I, this is my Justin's imagination, what it was, I try to see this through Mordecai's eyes when he saw Haman coming at him with probably uh, you know, an army of servants beside him and, and this look of just you know, anger in his eyes as he's going to, to, to do what the king's commanded him to do. But in the shock of it when, when all of this actually transpires. But, but this phrase, this is what it's the phrase that he was so, so happy to repeat when he was thinking of himself that he treasured in his heart. You know, the, the, the man whom the king is delighted to honor, now he's saying it in reference to Haman, and it must just be like ashes in his mouth. It must be awful. His daydream turns into his worst nightmare. If ever there was a picture of pride going before the fall, Haman's it, isn't it? God, or James says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I mean, this is, this is what we see played out in this very stunning reversal. That, and, and what this passage does, I think, listen, it poses a serious warning. It does. Haman's fall, it was not predictable, humanly speaking. I mean, he, he seemed to have it all. He had fame, he had wealth, he had position, he had power, he had honor, he had security. He had everything going for him. He was, you know, as we said, 
decade or two ago. He was too big to fail. But, but in the space of less than 24 hours, he's disgraced, and we're going to see he's dead. When the proud, when the wicked, when the unjust seem untouchable and beyond the reach of God's justice, listen, they are not. We are not. Haman set himself up against God and he, he opposed God and therefore he attacked God's people. His fall may not have been humanly predictable, but it was very biblically predictable. There's a very consistent biblical pattern that goes all the way back to the garden. It, it runs through the Abrahamic covenant. It, it goes through those, those, those God's curse of the Amalekites from whom Haman descended. It, it's this consistent pattern. God's justice will not be thwarted. Is it possible someone here might be under God's curse? Is it possible someone today could be under God's curse? The reality is that we're all born under God's curse. We're all born under His curse. The Bible is clear that anyone who breaks God's law, even the tiniest detail, is under God's curse. Galatians 3.10 this means that if we're trying to rely upon our own relative goodness to, to appease God, we are in serious trouble. Even if we think our personal record is well above average, we're in trouble. Nothing short of perfect obedience offered from a perfect heart will meet God's standard. And all who fall short of that standard are under God's curse. This is how we're all born. Now, outwardly, the, 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 the marks of that curse may not be very immediately evident right now. I mean, you can be prospering in your business and your career and be under God's curse. You can be surrounded by people who care about you, who respect you, and still be under God's curse. You can be enjoying the good life in every way, just like Haman was, and still be under God's curse. But the seeds of our destruction are there. They're germinating, like, like these Hidden, this hidden cluster of cancer cells, and it's just waiting to explode and completely overwhelm your body's defenses. It's there. And if we obstinately remain under God's curse, and death comes, then we'll face eternal wrath. This is the reality. We're all born under it. But unlike Haman, you still have time to turn to the Lord. Israel's Lord that we're seeing here. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is our only hope of avoiding that terrible eternal destiny coming out from under that curse. It's not, it's not because justice is, is somehow ignored or set aside or, or just ah, forget about it. It's fine. Let's let bygones be bygones. It's not that. That doesn't happen if we turn to Christ by faith. Our confidence is that justice has been fully satisfied satisfied by Christ who suffered God's wrath for our sins in our place on the cross. That's what our confidence is. Because we're all, as I said, we're all born guilty before God, that God's justice is completely unavoidable. Either we will trust in Christ and be clothed with His righteousness now, or we will stand before judgment on, the, on, our, on our own merits and face God on our own merits be punished for eternity. If you are alive, listen, if you're alive and hearing my voice, sitting here, watching on live stream, then it's not too late for you. Look to Christ today. 
Trust in Him and, and the redemption that he, he has provided and He offers to you through His death and resurrection. The price has been paid. Look to Him. There's hope. There's good news for Hamans like us in Christ. So when hope seems lost, it isn't. When no one seems to notice, God does. When, just, when enemies seem untouchable, when justice, injustice seems untouchable, it's not. And then last, quickly, when God seems very far, He's near. At the end of the day, two men, the two men here, Haman and Mordecai, they, they go their separate ways. And so for his part, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, verse 12, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. So as Haman goes home, he doesn't really find much comfort there either. <laughs> uh, just, just when things can't really get any darker for him, enter his wonderfully delightful wife, uh, Zeresh. Um, but actually, she's speaking, she's speaking some cold, hard truth to him. Uh, she's saying more than she even knows, probably. So verse 13, And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Now, no doubt he's expecting sympathy and some very affirming words. Oh, it's not that bad. You'll be fine. You'll get back on, on top of your game. Don't worry. His day's coming. All those kinds of things. He's kind of looking for those soothing words to make him feel better. Remember chapter 4. This is the exact same thing that they gave to him before. You know, it's okay. Just follow your heart. Build some gallows. Kill Mount Mordecai. You'll feel better about yourself the next day. So, but look what the text says. So he's, he's expecting that, but then it says, Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have already begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. That's not what he's looking for. But since Mordecai is of the Jewish people, literally from the seed of the Jews, Haman's chances, chances of overcoming him are non-existent. You will surely fall. You're doomed, Mordecai, or Haman. And we sort of wonder why they didn't share this little nugget of, of theological wisdom the night before uh, when, the, when he was going to them and they, they gave him such awful counsel as mentioned. But maybe, maybe as they're hearing of these events that have transpired, they see this as sort of this divine omen. This is it's just pointing to something. This is this is pointing to his inevitable fall before Mordecai. It seems they at least have some awareness of God's providential care of his people, the Jews, his chosen people. Regardless, though, his counselors here, they don't mention, they don't explicitly acknowledge by name the one from whom this judgment will come. They don't say the Lord's name, but they do say it's because he's of the Jewish people. What's implicit in their warning it needs to be very explicit in our understanding. That's what I want us to see. God, though seemingly absent, though seemingly far, is powerfully near and present and working. They, they confess it in so many words, but in, in, implicit, in an implicit way, we want to say it very explicitly. This isn't just about people and plans and horizontal relationships and you know business deals that have gone bad. That's not what's behind all of this all of this mess. No, there is an unseen divine hand at work here, and it's unstoppable. This is what they're acknowledging, again, without fully understanding probably what they're saying. Tragically, though, 
there's no change in Haman's course as a result of this warning. This is potentially uh, like a Psalm 2 kind of moment. If you remember that Psalm 2 that's looking to the a psalm about the Lord's anointed. And so, so Haman's idolatry has been exposed for what it truly is and it's utterly empty. His opposition to the Lord's, against the Lord's people has been shown to be completely vain and, and you cannot, you cannot uh, do that. Now is the time, as Psalm 2 says, to be wise, to bow down, to kiss the Son, to, to kiss the anointed one, to lest you be destroyed along your way. That's not what we find happening here. I wish that's what we read. It's not what we see. In fact, Haman's given very little time to reflect on his foolishness here. And so verse 14, chapter concludes, While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. And we end on another cliffhanger, don't we? Now probably... Again, before the warning of his wife can even fully sing in, before he can pour himself a stiff drink and kind of take in all that he's heard from his wife and his, his friends, he's whisked off to this royal feast. And, and the very tragic end that he has so meticulously planned for Mordecai will soon be his. That's what's coming. Now, once again, though, and we've seen this throughout, we see the invisible hand of God changing the course of history. Now, I know we, we talk, we've talked, used this expression, seeing the invisible hand of God. I realize that's sort of an, that's an oxymoron here. We can't see something that's invisible. But you know, on a fall day, which we had about a week ago, and I don't know where it went, um, but, you know, you see we, the leaves are starting to fall. They're not turning colors yet, which is always annoying to me when you don't get the benefits of the beauty of fall. You just get the mess of cleaning up the mess of fall. But... But when the, when the leaves start falling and you can see the wind, you know, bending the trees and blowing and scattering the leaves, we see, we see the effects as we look out the window and we, we feel it. But, and so we can see the impact. So too here in the book of Esther, God's work of providence, it's, it's so clear. The effect is so clear that even these pagans, they can't miss the significance of it and the unstoppability of it. So if even Zeresh and, and the other friends of Haman can acknowledge this irresistible, invisible divine hand that will not be thwarted, how much more should we be able to embrace this truth in our lives, brothers and sisters? God is working in our lives. He's working in our world. He is. Often through very unexpected and seemingly ugly and seemingly insignificant events and ways and decisions and plans, but He's working to accomplish His good purposes. We can trust Him. And we know this very personally, don't we? If you are a Christian, you know this in your life. If you're a Christian, just consider the chain of circumstances that led up to your conversion to Christ. Have you ever thought about that? I hope you have, but I mean, maybe you were just randomly you know, flipping through channels on the television or, or you know, radio or something like that, just, just turning, trying to find something to listen to or, or now, you know, scrolling through social media and, and this preacher just happened to be preaching and, and you just gave it a few seconds and something he said kind of drew you in and you sat there and you listened and the Lord used that to open your eyes to the gospel. Some of you, I know you have stories similar to that. Maybe, maybe you just happened to pick up some evangelistic track, you know, laying on a on a public restroom counter or something like that. You, and, and just in that moment, you, you, you read it and, and the Lord used that to open your heart to Him. 
Maybe, maybe a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a classmate, just some stranger invited you to church or to some Bible study. And you went. You just you were cynical, you were not expecting anything, you weren't looking for anything, and the Lord opened your eyes. And he's just the most significant, the most significant work of God in your life. Period. It probably came about through this chain of events which probably seemed very unimportant at the time. And God, and listen, God was working years. He was working decades. He was working centuries. He he was working millennia before you were ever born in this chain of gospel witness to bring you to that place where the gospel came to you. It's remarkable. And He's working even now. He's working in, again, billions and billions of ways even now to do that. Consider how God's guided and directed your life in other ways. If you're married, just think about all of the things that happened for you to actually meet and marry your spouse. Think about why you're living in this area. Think about how you ended up in this church and all of the connections and events and moves that brought you here to be sitting in this room with us right now. What circumstances led to your current job or to the school that you're in. Just all of those things of life. God's protection and care. It's not usually through these really impressive miracles that people write books about. It's through very ordinary circumstances of everyday life. Where He makes one little thing connect to another. And we, we can't see all of those connections. And so, but, but these, these tiny miracles of God's providence, they're always directing our steps. Now that all sounds good and beautiful, doesn't it? But that's not all there is in life, is it? It's not just weddings and you know, babies being born and new job promotions and you know, exciting moves. All of life's circumstances are not pleasant. Some providences are really dark and they're bitter and they're hard. Life circumstances can be tragic and ugly and destructive and abusive and horrific. And I know you've experienced some of those. I mean, just just like what Esther went through, just like this plot to annihilate the, the, the Jews of Persia, initiated on the eve of Passover. But the death of a, a loved one that some are reeling from now, a, a diagnosis, some terminal disease or some life debilitating condition, wayward children, broken relationships, shattered hopes and dreams and expectations. On and on. Listen, while none of these things certainly are good in and of themselves, even in the worst of life circumstances, we trust that God is working to accomplish His perfect will. That's not a callous thing to say. I'm trying to be lovingly truthful. One thing leads to the next, and there, there is this big chain path to the joy that God promises, to that eternal joy that God promises, it, it often winds through valleys uh, of, of suffering and intense despair. It does. And so we, we can't 
We can't understand God's providence, can we? I think that that's something we can walk away from after the story of Esther. We, we can't fully get our minds around this truth of how God's sovereignty over all things in life, how it intersects with humans, with our real decisions and real choices and real plans and real actions and, 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 and in a way that those are not competitors, but they, they connect. But listen... We can't grasp all of that. Our posture shouldn't be to, to you know, kind of angrily question that. Our posture should be to trustingly assume it. Assume it. Because there will be times when you ask, God, where are you? What in the world are you doing? How does this possibly fit? How can this possibly be for good? I don't understand. And, 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 and we can take those to, to the Lord. But in those moments, we, we also need to, to speak like the psalmist to ourselves and get a hold of our minds and our thoughts and say, God, though, I, but I know you're there. I know you're here. I know you're up to something. Even, even through this mess, you're working good. And so help me Help me to trust you for today. That's faith. It's trusting in the presence and providence of God even before we can see it with hindsight. Well, there's, there's something in the text, and I hope you've already seen it, but I want to come back to it that points us to, to our confidence at all times and whatever we walk through. There's that phrase that Haman loved when thinking about himself, but those were shoes that were way too big for him. It's that phrase, the man whom the king delights to honor. Who is the ultimate man whom God, the, the ultimate king, delights to honor? It's, it's none other than Jesus Christ, isn't it? Mordecai, I think, I think it's very clear. Mordecai is a type of Christ in his exaltation here. And so one day, Jesus is going to be at the head of this great victory parade, leading his enemies behind him. One day, every knee will bow before him, willingly or not, and confess, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. But, but, but Mordecai is also, he is a foil of Christ in his humiliation. And we see it in this. You see, Mordecai is dressed in these royal robes. Jesus, he walked the road to the cross undressed, exposed to public shame. Mordecai is mounted on a royal horse during this procession, which itself is crowned with this emblem of royalty. Jesus had to walk bent over with the weight of that wooden beam upon his shoulders. The only crown in sight that day was the crown of thorns that his enemies made for him and pressed into his skull to mock him. Mordecai was proclaimed publicly as the, as the man whom the king delights to honor. Jesus was derided at every bitter step of the way. The, 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 the Roman soldiers mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews! The crowds cried out, Crucify him! We, we have no king but Caesar! The chief priests and the scribes, they laughed at him and said, He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. There was zero public honor for Jesus on that day. But listen, the mocking voices of the crowd and the public shame of the cross, they weren't the deepest, deepest darkness that Jesus endured that day. Though. It was the silence from heaven 
it was the hardest to bear. The voice that had once split the heavens, declaring of Jesus at his baptism. Remember Luke 3.22, you, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That voice was silent during those three hours of darkness on the cross. The voice that repeated at his transfiguration, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. It was had nothing to say there. And though he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no answer. No response. Why not? Did God no longer delight in his beloved son? Was Jesus no longer the one whom the king delighted to honor? How could that possibly be? Well, the unimaginable became reality on the cross as Jesus endured the full measure of shame and separation from God that our sin deserved. We are the ones who failed to give, the, give honor that He deserves. We are the ones who instead sought our own kingdom and our own interests. We are the ones who came out of the womb shaking our fists in defiance against God's authority. We are the ones who are idolaters. It was our sin that required Jesus to remain on the cross until His work of redeeming us by paying the full price of our sins was completed. How should we respond to this reality? We see Haman unwillingly Un, unmovingly, he's declaring Mordecai's honor, just gritting his teeth to say the words. He's forced to declare Mordecai's praise. So also, some will unwillingly declare the honor of Christ on the last day. But we who are His people, by we are His people by free and sovereign grace, we should be clamoring to declare His praises right, right now. By grace, because of our union with Christ, we, we actually get to share in the delight of the Father for His Son. And so how can we, how can we grow tired of declaring His praises, declaring His excellencies, singing His praise? Let's pray. Lord, Overwhelm our, our minds our, with the, the reality of all that's been provided for us by the one whom the Father delighted to honor. The one who willingly took on the shame in our place so that as he came out of the tomb and was exalted, the honor that he's enjoyed from eternity, now we are swept up in by virtue of our union with Christ. And though we still sin, though we still falter though we still find idolatry present in our lives lord you see us not through anything other than the perfect righteousness of another of jesus christ hallelujah lord and help us to in view of that reality to see the circumstances of our lives even the very difficult circumstances and even the very ordinary events of our lives through a different lens trusting that you are a good father who knew, knows what's best for us. And therefore, Lord, as we're going to sing, how can we keep from singing in light of your care? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.